0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. and how it teaches us about ourselves, who we are and why you've made us, and how we should live in life better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Quote, The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant, thus spake eminent physicist Stephen Hawking. Is he right? Are we just insignificant scum on an irrelevant planet, existing without purpose, or are we something more? What does God say? Well, two weeks ago in Genesis 1, we saw that humanity is the summative creation in God's visible universe, that we are the very image bearers of God, God's deputy rulers over this planet who reflect Him, who testify to all life on this planet about who God is and what He's like. And today as we continue in the book of Genesis, we come to chapter 2, verses 4-17, through 17, and we find some more truths about who we are. ...and why we exist. And today we're going to see four truths about humanity. First, humanity is a union of the material with the immaterial. Second, humanity is created to work. Third, humanity is created to obey God. And fourth, humanity is made new through the redemption available in Jesus Christ. Let's start with our first point, which is that humanity is a union of the material with the immaterial. Today we come to the beginning of the second section in the book of Genesis. And each of the eleven sections in this book begins with an introductory statement. We find that statement in chapter 2 verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, all of the introductory statements in Genesis, except the first one, feature a key word. This word translated generations. In Hebrew, this is toledo, which was translated into Greek as genesis. Which, that's where the book's title comes from. And this word basically means, here's what happened next about whomever or whatever is named. So here in verse 4, we're being told, here's what happened next. To the heavens and the earth. The first section of this book we saw the heavens and the earth were created. Now we're going to see what happened to them. And what happened to them involves God and it involves people. Now notice that our author Moses here calls God. Not just God as we saw in chapter 1. Not just the Hebrew term Elohim. But now Moses calls God the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. Moses is telling his original readers, the Israelites that the God who made everything is their God, the God who is in a covenant with them. But how did Yahweh's good creation fall into ruin and corruption? Well, that's what this second section of Genesis is all about. And what we're going to discover is that creation is corrupted because of humanity's rebellion against God. So far from being insignificant to the universe, actually, we had massively influenced the cosmos for bad. Now, to explain humanity's rebellion against God, Moses begins at the beginning. He explains now God's creation of humanity. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you might say, hey, wait a minute. I thought we already looked at the creation of humanity. And we did back in chapter 1, verse 27. We read there that God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Why is Moses talking about humanity's creation again? Well, what we saw in chapter 1 was just a summary statement that explained how humanity's beginnings fit within the overall framework of creation. But Moses has a lot more to say about humanity's beginnings. And so we need to understand what was said in chapter 1 about humanity's origin as just an introduction to a larger topic, a topic Moses is now going to explain in detail. And he did the same thing back in chapter 1. You might remember how the book began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was a summary. And then he unpacked that. He he explained it in great detail. He's now going to do the same thing about the creation of man. So now Moses begins his detailed account of humanity's origin with the setting. Look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Here we learn about what earth was like on the sixth day, the day when God made man. And Moses says at that point, the earth lacked certain plants that existed in Moses' day and which exist in our day. Now Moses is not denying the existence of all plant life on earth at this point. Far from it. In chapter 1 he said on the third day, many different kinds of trees sprouted. But here we learn that some types of plant life have not yet sprouted. Small forms of shrubbery that require the work of cultivation and irrigation. Work that must be done by people. well people didn't exist yet. So those shrubs have not yet sprouted. But the rest of the plants survived, not because of rain, it was not yet raining on the earth. But Moses says that at that time the world was hydrated by a mist or some kind of saturation that emerged from the ground. And as the earth sat in this condition with plants and animals and wet dirt, God acts. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became A living creature. God creates the first person. We're told two things about this. First, he's created from the dust of the ground. The Hebrew word is adamah. It basically means dirt. The word adam, the Hebrew word for a human, comes from this term meaning dirt. Now, for the sake of simplicity, we're going to call this first man Adam. And that actually becomes his personal name a little bit later in the book. But God here uses clay to build Adam. And appropriately, the verb that's used to describe God's sculpting here is a verb that describes the artistic word of a potter. And that's the idea you find elsewhere in the Bible, isn't it? That God is a sovereign artist, a designer who fashions and purposes, and that we are just God's handiwork made to serve His purposes. But while man is created using matter... That is not all that we are. Contrary to the prevailing thought of today, humanity is not simply a physical, material, biological reality. We are not only the stuff of chemistry and physics. Because Adam does not become a living creature until God imparts the breath of life to him. God alone has life within himself. Nobody gave life to God. But everybody else that has life ultimately gets it from God. Either directly in creation or through the natural reproductive processes that God has instituted. But God is the source of life. And only after God imparted the breath of life, the immaterial or spiritual essence to the human, only then did Adam live. So human life is the union of the material with the immaterial. We have a material part physical bodies, and an immaterial part, variously called the soul or the spirit in the Bible. And both are necessary for life. Unfortunately, at times, Christianity has forgotten this truth that both of these parts are important. Throughout Christian history, the church has often been tempted by the false philosophy of dualism, which says that matter is bad and spirit is good. So we often today talk about God saving our souls. But what about our bodies? I think we often just think, oh, they're irrelevant. They're going to decay. Friends, that's not biblical. The biblical hope is the resurrection of the body. Jesus' body rose from the dead and was glorified. Philippians 3 says the Christian's hope is the same. Our bodies will be raised from the dead and transformed. So not only will our souls be saved, our bodies will be too. And we will inhabit forever-believing, friends, a real sensory place, the new creation. So matter is not bad. And we would do well to remember not everything that calls itself spiritual is good either. There are plenty of full spirits and full spiritualities. But humanity is a soul-body unity. Practically then, friends, we would do well to remember that our bodies matter. This is a theological idea I did not learn until much too late in life. Because I imbibed the idea that the physical was irrelevant and the inner self was all that mattered. My thinking was not biblical. God himself fashioned the first human. God is our sculptor and our bodies matter. They matter to him, and so we should attend to them. John writes in in 3 John to his friend Gaius, I pray that you may enjoy good health. Or Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8, bodily exercise is of some value. And so we do well to take care of our bodies. That is a good thing to do. But at the same time, we must not imagine that's all we should do, like many people think today. Because we also contain this immaterial spiritual heart. And right after commending physical exercise, Paul says to Timothy, But godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So, friends, we must not only care for our bodies, we must also attend to our souls. Because when our bodies and our souls are parted, our bodies are just dust. That's physical death. But our souls will continue to exist somewhere, awaiting the time when they will be rejoined within our bodies. So we need to recognize we are made of a material and an immaterial part, and we must care for both. We come to our second and our largest point, which is that humanity was created to work. God has made man, now God makes man a place to live. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, in the midst of the dry earth, God acts, and he does so in a place called Eden, which we're told was in the east. The east of what? Well, probably the promised land of Canaan, where the Israelites were heading when Moses wrote this. And there in Eden... God planted a garden. Now the Hebrew word translated garden here comes from a verb that means to be enclosed or fenced off. And so we should understand that the garden had a border or a wall or something like that. And in chapter 3 we're going to learn it had one entrance which faced east. Now what was inside this garden? Well, Look at verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The garden was a place of immense fruitfulness and beauty. It was filled with every type of tree. There's nothing monotonous or boring here. There's lots of options, lots of variety, lots of diversity. The trees of the garden were and they were visually appealing in every way. There's nothing lacking in that sense at all. And all the trees produced delicious food, fruit. Genesis 1.29 says that God gave humanity every plant and every tree with seed in its fruit for food. And friends, humanity had no shortage of tasty, healthy food in the garden. So God gave an amazing provision of sensory delight. But that's not all. Because in the center of this garden stood two unique trees. The first was the tree of life. The special property of this tree is described by God in Genesis 3.22 when he says that humanity might reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The fruit of this tree somehow produces Unending life. Say, how's that work? I don't know. But that's the property God has given to this most valued tree. Now, the second unique tree here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree is going to prove significant because this is the tree that God is going to forbid Adam's feet from at the end of our passage. And it is about this issue that humanity will rebel and plunge the cosmos into chaos. But what exactly is the special property of this tree? Well, apparently eating from it produced a knowledge of good and evil. But what does that mean? Surely in one sense, Adam was aware of good even before he ate from this tree. He lived in a world that God had declared to be good. And he communed face to face with the God who was good. And he received instructions from God that he knew to be good. Adam was aware of goodness already, some degree. And Adam knew that he should obey God's commands and that it would be wrong to do so. That's why he ate only plants. That's why he initially did not eat from the forbidden tree. Because he at least had a rudimentary category of evil. Something to be avoided even before the fall. So in what sense should we understand that this tree communicated a knowledge of good and evil? I think the idea is this. Eating from this tree sets someone up as an independent arbiter of right and wrong. It puts someone in the position of defining good and evil for themselves, apart from God's determination. And that might not be so much a supernatural property of the fruit of this tree. It might be more related just to the action involved from eating its fruit, because this tree was forbidden And so to eat from it was to make the very kind of determination that humanity should not make. It was to usurp that role that rightly belongs to God alone, which is decreeing what is good and what is evil. And this forbidden tree stood next to the tree of life in the midst of this glorious, lush, verdant garden. And how did this garden stay so lush? Well, look at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Now, Eden is apparently the name of a region. Some have equated it with the holy mountain of God in Ezekiel 28. And within Eden is this garden. But within Eden is something else, the source of this river, which passed through the garden and irrigated it. And then it went outside the garden, and at some point it split into four distinct rivers which are now described. Verse 11. The name of the first is the Bishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Habilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The Delia and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, or literally Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, Eden's location is given here with reference to various rivers and lands. Some of these locations are identifiable on a map today. We know where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are. They start in Turkey, they run through Syria and Iraq, and they empty the into the Persian Gulf. Asher was the ancient capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it sat on the Tigris River in modern Iraq. Other locations listed here we can identify with some probability. The rest of the Old Testament seems to identify Habila as being somewhere in Arabia. And Kush in the Old Testament can mean one of two kingdoms, either the kingdom of Nubia in Africa or the kingdom of the Kassites in modern Iraq. But some of the locations we find here we cannot identify with any certainty at all today. We have no idea where the piece shown in the Gihon Yee- River is Now it might be a fool's errand to try and plot these points on a map to try to locate Eden, because the geography of our world today may not at all resemble the world's geography at that time. The flood had not yet happened, or maybe other events that moved the continents around. It may truly be impossible to plot a point and say this is Eden on a modern map. But if we could, it would probably probably be either in eastern Turkey, near the site of the source of the Tigris and Euphrates, or perhaps at the the head of the Persian Gulf, where the Tigris and the Euphrates empty today, near where Asher and the Kassites were located. But if that location is correct, it would mean that over history, the the course of the flow of the Tigris and and Euphrates rivers has reversed. That might be a consequence of the fall, we don't know. But there are different theories here. At the end of the day, though, here again, we must just say, we don't know. We don't know where Eden is in the modern world. The garden has been lost in more ways than one. But God planted this garden. Now look at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God put Adam in the garden. Actually, the the verb translated put here means something like "settle." or reposed. Adam was given a peaceful home here. But while his home was peaceful, the garden was not a place of idle pleasure and endless relaxation. No, God gave Adam a job to work the garden and keep it. One commentator commentator puts it like this. The garden was not a place of magic. It didn't regulate itself. It required maintenance and upkeep. It was a work site. It required gardening. And that was Adam's charge. Now this is not the only job given to humanity. We saw a different assignment back in chapter 1, verse 28. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this tells us the first people had duties inside the garden and in the world outside the garden. Humanity was to tend the garden, but humanity was also to venture outside and subdue the rest of the earth and exercise mastery over all life on land and air and, and water. It seems then the idea was not just for man to tend the garden, but also to develop the rest of the world to be more like the garden. And that was Adam's job. So God made man to work. Now this is an important correction for many of us. Because often we think that work is a necessary evil in our lives. Something that detracts from the the enjoyment we would otherwise have if we just didn't have to work. I've heard people even say work is a consequence of the fall. Friends, that's not true. Work is a creation of ordinance. It is a good institution God gave man before the fall. Now, yes, the fall changed the nature of work. Sin led to the curse, and the curse made work harder. The earth became uncooperative to Adam. He had to work really painfully and rigorously to make the earth uh, bear a plant life. But Adam was always to work, fall or no. And we're going to see next week Eve also was to work. She was to help Adam with his duties. And so men and women were created to work. And you know what? Of the only two pre-fall institutions that exist in our world, work and marriage, work is the one that will last for eternity, not marriage. We're going to see at the end of our time today, work is something that continues through the new creation. Not the hard labor Adam faced after his sin, but work as it was at the beginning. So make no mistake, we were made to work, and we will work forever. And so we must work now. The Proverbs say much about work. Proverbs 6.6. 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber diligent, hard work is good, and laziness is ruin. Proverbs 20, verse 23 speaks of corrupt business practices in the ancient world and says, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and full scales are not good. Friends, God cares how you work. God is angry when we work in a way that exploits other people or cheats them. Proverbs 22, 29, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. It's good to be good at our jobs. God commends it. There's a pattern here. Hard, good work is godly. And we see the same thing in the New Testament. Paul says to the Thessalonians that he set them an example of hard work when he lived among them, an example they were to imitate, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. See, there were folks in the Thessalonian church who wouldn't work, who were mooches off church members, and had all of this idle time, and they used it to stir up trouble in the church. And Paul says, stop supporting lazy people. If they won't work, don't let them eat. And he goes on to tell them in that chapter, excommunicate them, put them out of the church. If they persist in laziness, unrepentant. Instead, Paul tells lazy people, get a job and make your own money. And he tells the whole church, in fact, they should pattern their thinking about his own example. When Paul was in Thessalonica, he could have said, hey, I'm an apostle, I'm here to minister, give me money. He didn't do that. Instead, he worked as a tent maker, Acts 18 says. That's skilled labor, but it's also manual labor. Friends, the Bible doesn't tell us whether white-collar work or blue-collar work is more spiritual. Paul preached and he worked with his hands. He was bivocational. And he tells us about his experience in in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, working in Thessalonica. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul worked hard. He worked long hours. And you might say, well, when did he preach? He says he preached while he was working. Church members spent time with him as he made tents. And he used his work as an occasion to instruct them which would enable customers and passers-by to hear the gospel. See, Paul didn't just set an example of hard work. He shows us you can leverage your work for the gospel. But Paul didn't just set an example of work. He also instructs believers how we should handle ourselves at work, whether we're employer or employee. In Ephesians 6, he speaks to slaves and those who are free, free men who are employed, and he says this, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. same is true for bosses. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Friend, hear me on this. God is not impressed by your title at work or by your salary. What God wants is you to work in a faithful way that reflects well on him. He wants us to work as though Jesus was our direct boss. So wherever you work, at home or in the office, whether you're the big boss or the undersecretary to the janitor, Work like Jesus is your supreme supervisor because he is. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When we work for him, we need to work like Jesus is the one giving us performance reviews because he is. And we need to labor like that's true. We must not cheat our employers out of time or money. We must not turn in lousy work products. We must not be lazy. We've got to do our best because we're all on the clock at Jesus and company. And he sees and will reward our efforts. Now friends, all of this tells us then that our work really matters, believing friends. I think Many people today have this wrong idea that our daily jobs are insignificant and the only kind of job that has spiritual value is vocational ministry. That's false. That is an extension of an incorrect notion that there are some parts of life which are religious and other parts which are secular, devoid of spiritual content. But friends, the biblical idea is that Christian belief impacts every area of life. Everything in life is valuable and can serve, God's glory and purposes. But you might say, well, how can my job do anything for God? Well, so think about this. Let's go back to the job God gave Adam. Adam was to work and keep the garden. On the surface, it sounds like he was a gardener. But if you look up these two verbs and search for places where they appear together in the Old Testament, what you find is these verbs often describe the duties of Old Testament priests who ministered in the tabernacle or later in the temple. Now usually when we find these two verbs in other contexts, they're translated differently. So instead of saying work, usually priests are said to serve. Or instead of saying keeping, usually priests are said to guard. But it's the same verbs in Hebrew. Let me show you one example. Numbers chapter 18 verse 5. This is the job description for a Levitical priest. And you shall keep guard, same verb as in our passage, over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers the Levites from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you given to the Lord to do the service, same verb, translated work in our passage, the service of the tent of meeting. Now this gives us a different sense of Adam's duties, right? He's not just a gardener. Adam is a priest commissioned to maintain a holy place that gives us a different sense of the garden, too, right? The garden, that is not just a lush orchard. This is the first place of worship where God uniquely manifests himself on earth. There are a number of parallels. Like the tabernacle, the garden had one entrance facing east. The furnishings of the tabernacle and temple were designed to look like fruit-bearing trees to evoke the garden. And just like the tabernacle and temple had a holy of holies, surrounded by the holy place, surrounded by the outside world. In the garden, they find the midst of the garden with the unique trees, the rest of the garden, and the outside world. The garden is a temple, and Adam was a priest. A priest commissioned to maintain the garden, and to guard it. Guard it from what? Well, Satan is about to enter the garden, isn't he? In the guise of a serpent, to cause mayhem. Adam should have defended against that intrusion, and driven out the serpent or stomped its head. But again, Adam had duties. Not only to maintain the garden, he had duties in the entire world too. He was to fill the earth with other priests who would bear God's image, who would reflect God on earth, who would make God known, who would cultivate the earth to expand the glory of God far and wide. And yet in every one of these assignments, Adam failed. He was to guard the garden. He failed. He was cast out. And an angel wound up guarding the garden. He was supposed to cultivate the garden. He failed He was put out. And he did not expand the glories of God's temple throughout the earth. But even though Adam failed, God didn't give up on his idea of his people being priests. So in Sinai, God told Israel, Exodus 19.5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God didn't just give Israel some priests to run the tabernacle. God called Israel to be a nation of priests who would reflect Him in the world and make Him known. In Isaiah 43, God tells them, you are my witnesses, and He speaks about them being witnesses before the whole world. As Adam was to Israel, God and represent him on earth and reflect his attributes. Israel was to image God and represent him on earth as his witnesses and reflect him before the world. But like Adam, Israel failed. And yet, even though Israel failed, God didn't give up on this idea of calling his people to be priests. We read earlier that Peter said to Christians in 1 Peter 2: You are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We all used to belong to different ethnic groups, and we still do, right? We were not formerly one people group, though, like Israel was. But God has called people out of the world, out of every background, to form a new humanity. a chosen people for his possession. We are royal priests who serve him. Commissioned to proclaim His excellencies, to image Him and represent Him throughout the world. Revelation 5 praises Christ because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's us, friends. To be the priests Adam failed to be. That Israel failed to be. To make God known. Now we usually think about this in terms of evangelism. And evangelism is a big part of this. But it's broader than that. Because how did Adam discharge his priestly function? Through his gardening. And friends, we also discharge our priestly function of reflecting and imaging God in every aspect of our lives, including our work. So your work has immense spiritual significance. How you work reflects on God before other people. And what we do should reflect well on Him. It should accurately image Him. God is a skilled creator, is He not? Are you skilled in your job? When people look at you and know you're a Christian, do they say, wow, that person really does a great job? That says something about the God you represent. Or do they say, hey, that person doesn't care. That person is incompetent. Does that image God at all? God is a caring master artist. As you interact with customers or co-workers or bosses, what do those interactions look like? I mean, if you can evangelize in those spheres, do so. I know that's forbidden in many jobs today. But of course, that is the best and most direct way to talk people to God. But even outside of evangelism, God is kind and gracious. Can the same be said about you? Do you imitate God in how you treat others? Or are you offering a false impression? Friends, our jobs are a vestige of God's ancient command to Adam to reflect him throughout the world in all that he did. So let us work well as unto the Lord. Now let me finish this big point by warning against two anti-work perspectives that flourish in our culture today. First is the growing movement that explicitly calls itself anti-work, which rejects work as demeaning and unfulfilling, which demands a universal basic income for all people apart from work, Now, of course, many people in our society are in positions where they cannot work because of disability or because they cannot find jobs. That is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people who are able-bodied, who do have opportunities and abilities to work, but who choose not to. I'm reminded here of a story from 2011 in which a man quit his job as a security guard, went on government assistance, and proceeded to build adult-sized baby furniture so that he could impersonate a baby each day. One U.S. senator at the time said he was puzzled how a grown man who was able to design and build adult-sized baby furniture is eligible for disability benefits. And yet, after an extensive government review, the man was approved to continue receiving his checks. That kind of approach is totally contrary to the biblical way of life. Friends, we are created to work. And those who deliberately decide they will not work should not eat. And so today, friends, if if your life is marked by avoiding work and mooching off others so that you can enjoy boundless leisure, you need to repent. But let me address an even more common anti-work perspective, which is more common among Christians especially. Which is the fact that the most significant end times event most of us look forward to is not the return of Christ. It's retirement. Many of us want to retire because we want to be able to do whatever we want with our own lives. Now, retirement is not a bad thing. I've heard some preachers say it is. But in the Old Testament, God told the priest to retire at a certain age. So I don't think there's anything wrong with retirement. But what is bad is becoming so idle in retirement that you become a busybody. That you get bored and go stir up gossip or trouble with other people in the church. Friends, that is wicked. And I'm warning you, if you're retired or if that day is coming for you soon, don't be too self-indulgent in your retirement. It's a great illustration of this from the life of President Lyndon Johnson. Johnson had a bad heart. He was not allowed to smoke. But the minute his presidency ended, he got on a plane to leave Washington and he put a cigarette in his mouth. And his daughter said, what are you doing? And he said, I've raised you girls and I've been president, but now it's my time. And his biographer concludes by saying, from that point on, he went into a very self-destructive spiral, and he died almost four years later in the day. From retirement is not an entitlement to be your own master and just engage in self-indulgence. If you are retired today, find ways to be selfless through generosity. Labor at church. Labor at forming meaningful relationships with other people around you, believing and unbelieving. Redeem the time wisely, right? Even in retirement, work to the glory of God. Because we're created to work. But we come now to our third point, which is that humanity was created to obey God. God gave Adam a job. Now God gives Adam a command. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I'm going to show us all now how much we are like Adam and Eve. Because when you read these verses, where does your mind go immediately? To the end of the command, right? Where God restricts the tree of knowledge. But friends, if that's where our mind goes, what do we miss? The bounteous generosity of God. Because in the garden, which verse 9 said, was filled with every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God gave humanity access to every one of those trees, to every beautiful tree, every tree with tasty fruit. Even the tree of life was on offer. God gave humanity countless good gifts to enjoy here. All the trees, but one. And yet, what is it that we are drawn to? The one which is forbidden. If you ever doubt how much you bear the image of fallen Adam, remember how we read this verse today. It shows us that we are still under the perverse deception of the serpent. This lie is embedded in us. That is our inheritance from our first parents. That when we see God forbidding something in his word, we immediately assume that God is some killjoy trying to deprive us of pleasure, and that whatever has been forbidden is some hidden delight, that God is wrongly withholding from us. We get so fixated on what we can't have, we miss all that God has graciously given us, which is far better for us, and which is vastly more than what we need. Friends, we need to believe that God is right when He says no to us. Because God alone has the ability to decree what is good and evil accurately. God has infinitely higher knowledge and wisdom than we have, right? It is for us simply to take God at His word and trust that what God says is true. But that does not come naturally to us because we are the descendants of Adam, who has fallen. What we see here, God restricts this one tree. And God decrees a penalty here for violating this command, which is death. Now, this is the first time death is mentioned in the Bible. But many people today argue that death already existed at this point in Adam's world because they say, how else could Adam have understood this command when God warned about death? He didn't know what death was. I have to say, though, I don't think death existed prior to Adam's sin, because Paul later says death began with Adam's sin, but also because experiential knowledge is not necessary for us to grasp that something is bad and should be avoided. Today, we have not witnessed the torments of hell, but we all know we don't want to go there. In the same way, death may have been an abstract concept to Adam, but he would have understood from what God said. Death was bad if he wanted no part of it. So God decreed that if humanity violated this command, ate from the forbidden tree, death was a sure, certain, and immediate outcome. And in chapter 3, we're going to see Adam was deceived into disbelieving the reality of this consequence. So he rebelled and he ate. And what happened? Exactly what God wanted. Humanity immediately suffered what the Bible calls spiritual death. Humanity's relationship with God was severed. Immediately, humanity fell under the sentence of physical death. We were born from the tree of life. Decay and ruin entered the world, which leads to the breakdown of the body and ultimately the separation of our material and immaterial parts. That is physical death. And immediately, humanity fell under the just wrath of God. So the Bible calls eternal death. Indeed, as Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now, what should we take from this point? God made man in his image. He gave us the task of ruling over this world as his deputies, his priests. And yet, friends, our rule is not supreme. Our will is not absolute. Our actions are not unbounded. Because the Lord reigns supreme, not us. He is our creator and our ruler. And he has the right to tell us how to live and how not to live. And he commands us to perfectly reflect his moral excellence. 1 Peter 1, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And yet Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep of gone astray. We have turned everyone in his own way. We each have sinned. We all have sinned. We are sinners by nature and choice. Romans 3 says, None is righteous, They're not one. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, being by nature children of wrath. We've all danced to Satan's too. We've all believed the world's lies. We've all been dominated by our fleshly desires, wrongly calling good anything that appeals to our senses. And so we are dead spiritually, we are cut off from God. We die physically. And we face the prospect of eternal death, God's eternal furious wrath. That is some bad news. But we conclude now with our last point, in which we see some great news, which is that humanity is made new through the redemption available in Jesus Christ. Romans 5 Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The first sin plunged humanity and creation into ruin. But while Adam's failure in the garden led to the disaster of sin and death, the Bible says another, a last Adam has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 5.17 says, If because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ brings death to humanity, but Jesus brings life to all who believe the gospel. The good news that Jesus is truly God and truly man. That he died for our sins and that he's risen from the dead. And for all who repent and turn from living our lives of sinful dissipation to follow Jesus, trusting ourselves to him and what he has accomplished, there's a promise. A promise that our immaterial selves will be made new as soon as we believe. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Here's a further promise that our material bodies will be created anew at the end of history. 1 Corinthians 15.49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Although our current bodies reflect the ruin of fallen Adam, one day we will have glorified resurrection bodies that reflect Jesus' own resurrection. We will enjoy an embodied existence with no pain, no suffering, no death. A new and better body. And friends, we will dwell forever in a new and better garden. That's how Revelation 22 describes the new creation. Jesus makes good on Adam's failure to renew all creation as a temple. Let's look at the last five verses here. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The original garden had a river and a tree of life. Here we find a river but multiple trees of life. This is similar to Ezekiel's final vision that around a river of living water would be many trees that bore fruit monthly. And if this is right, the idea might be that in the new creation, all the trees will be trees of life. Visible reminders of our redemption. Friends, we will gain the tree of life if we believe. Not just one, but many. Verse 3 says... No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In the new creation, we still work. The verb translated worship here speaks of serving in the temple, just like Adam was originally charged to do. But while we will forever serve, we will not need to guard, because everything sinful will be gone. Satan and his regime will be in the lake of fire. They will propose no more threat. And unlike the first garden, there will be no tree of testing, no tree of knowledge, no prospect of sin. The new garden need not be guarded, only forever enjoyed. Friends, Jesus has not just one for us, Eden. He has one for us, something far better. And in this glorious home we read in in verses 4 and 5 of Revelation 22, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God will restore the relationship that Adam lost. We will dwell face to face with God forever in the bright light of His glory. Friends, that is what Jesus has won for us. And so the only question that remains today is do you belong to Jesus? Will this be your destiny, this new and better garden? Or will it be eternal death? Friends, the Bible says many times, Choose life that you may live. If you've never come to Christ in faith, I plead with you, turn to Jesus. Be made new today. Receive this hope of new resurrection life and a new world. But today, if you do know Jesus, rejoice in what he has won. Remember how we should live today, trusting his word, reflecting him well in this world as his image bearing priests, in our lives and at work and in our conduct, so that those around us will see him in us And will give him the glory due his name. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever.